0: Good morning. My name is Buck Anderson. I send you greetings from the Anderson campus. I was told that they traded me for this morning for some Ozarka water or something for the week, and so we'll see how that works out. But we're going to continue our time in the Word of God and specifically looking at theophanies. I'm sure that every guy that stood up here and preached their theophany thought they had the neatest theophany to speak about. I'm convinced I do, too, because I love Daniel chapter 7. I love the whole book of Daniel. I was privileged to be able to major in the Old Testament, and I uh, found myself marking up the book of Daniel a whole lot, and uh, in particular the seventh chapter, and that's where we're going to be in the bulk of our time today in in the first 14 verses of of Daniel chapter 7. But we need to set up the book a little to make you understand or help you understand a little bit about what's going on. I know you've been in Daniel 3 before uh, but let's remind ourselves that that Daniel is is a rather unique prophet. He uh, he has uh, a prophet to Judah during this time of six hundred five BC to six uh, to five thirty five. But he has a specialty. Uh, he's a dreamer. He's a, a, a vision reader. He is a, a guy who probably grew up at home hearing his mom say, "Daniel, you're just a dreamer," and it worked out pretty well for him. For Daniel's dreams, really, will comprise the bulk the bulk rather of the book. Daniel. He will interpret others' dreams. He will have dreams on his own or visions and then interpret them. And through those dreams and visions, lay out for us the history of the world and its future. So it's really an amazing document. Uh, He is also what's called an exilic prophet. There are only two exilic prophets. These are guides that prophesied during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And finally, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was ruined by... Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian armies, and over three separate times in 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and finally in 586 B.C., Jews were carried back to what would be modern-day Iraq, and they were made to serve in the court, in Daniel's case of Nebuchadnezzar, or do meaningless tasks elsewhere. But Daniel and Ezekiel, the only kind of prophets that prophesied during that time to encourage those that were in captivity in Babylon, and also those that were still back and scattered in Judah. His contemporaries, of course, Ezekiel, also Jeremiah, who literally saw the ruination of Jerusalem as it fell in August of 586. And so these three guys can bring us great insight, not only into the history of what's going, what was going on in Jerusalem, but how it felt. Jeremiah's book, Lamentations, will be uh, his, his basically his autobiography, how he felt as he saw his nation fall in ruin. Daniel will, will use all types of different literature. He'll give us some history. And he's about 15 years old when he's taken captive, and he will serve in the king's court, and he will interpret dreams and, and, and serve well for 70 years. The entire time that Israel is in captivity, he will be there. And he'll be released and probably die at around 90 after a very long and, and um, storied prophetic career. But he's primarily a deliverer of prophecy, and a particular kind of prophecy is where we're going to focus on today, what's called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis. In fact, the the book of Revelation in Greek is really the book of the apokalypsis, the unveiling, the finale. Prophetic apocalyptic literature looks at the very end of time, at the end of our time on earth, the new heavens, new earth, things of that nature. Daniel's going to give us great insight into that. But the ultimate reason behind all of prophecy, whether it be apocalyptic or not, is to remind us of the supreme sovereignty of the Lord, the supreme sovereignty of Yahweh, that literally, as the old song said, He has the whole world at His hand, and nothing that unfolds is outside of His eye, outside of His scrutiny. And as we see the nations over time unfold, we'll recognize that God, in fact, has brought all this to be and has given Daniel and us insight into that. Can't talk about prophecy without a chart, so I brought a chart along here. It's helpful to uh, to sort of understand where you are. My grandfather used to take me to Astro baseball games, and we'd always buy a program because he'd say you can't know the players without a scorecard. You can't really know the Old Testament players without a scorecard. And beautifully, the Old Testament follows a chronology almost perfectly, from Genesis all the way to... Really, Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. But uh, we're going to see from, from creation to the Old Testament closing all sorts of events. your Abraham, Isaacs, and Jacobs. But it really starts to get interesting here under the kings. With, of course, with, with, with Saul and then David, and then in particular David's son Solomon. For David's son Solomon will have to endure the splitting of the kingdom. You read about that in Kings and Chronicles where ten tribes called Israel went to the north, and and those tribes started in in 931 with their unique kingdom, but they were defeated by Assyria in 722 B.C., and really never to be regathered, never to be uh, replenished into the land. The southern kingdom, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, in and around Jerusalem, uh, lasted till finally 586 B.C. The Babylonian Empire was rising then, and a, a king and also a general named Nebuchadnezzar, was on the scene. And Nebuchadnezzar came a knocking three different times. He came to Jerusalem in 605 B.C., and he took, ba- he took Daniel back to Babylon as well as many others. He comes back in 597 B.C., and he takes Ezekiel and others. And finally, in 586, he, he sacks Jerusalem. Jeremiah witnesses it, most likely flees to Egypt. But nonetheless, uh, the land lies in ruin. The temple is desecrated for 70 years as this captivity unfolds. And so uh, why these people were writing is, of course, important to warn them of these coming exiles. And finally, when you get to Jeremiah, by the way, God, through Jeremiah, says, just bow the knee, for this is the discipline I have for you. And, and, and Jeremiah's ministry, of course, was not received that well, because nobody wanted to hear that God is telling us to uh, bow the knee to this foreign pagan king. But it was God's proper discipline of them. During that seven-year period, but he brought prophets with him, and he took care of his people as he was, as he promised. The empire was was vast at the time. This is in and around, of course, the ancient Near East. This would be modern day Iraq here, modern day Iran here, Persian Gulf. Um, and here's Ur, of the Chaldees from where um, Abram came from, Babylon, modern day El Halal between the Tigris and Euphrates River. So, if you wanted to come. From here and attack this place, you didn't cut across because the desert was too hard. You followed what is called the Fertile Crescent. It looks like a little crescent roll there. It follows these rivers, and then, of course, the Jordan River inside uh, Israel, and that's how you attacked Israel. But that was the domain that Nebuchadnezzar had built for himself, and we're going to see that that's the first of the empires that Daniel will see uh, in a vision. Gleason Archer writes this about the importance of the book of Daniel. In New Testament prophecy, Daniel is referred to more than any other Old Testament book. Moreover, it contains more fulfilled prophecies than any other book in the Bible. Many of them fulfilled, many of them yet to be fulfilled, by the way. In many respects, the book of Daniel is the most comprehensive prophetic revelation of the Old Testament, giving the only total view of world history from Babylon to the second advent of Christ, to the return of Christ and interrelating Gentile history and prophecy with that which concerns Israel. Daniel provides the key to the overall interpretation of, of prophecy. It is the major element in premillennialism, that's hard to say, and it is essential in the interpretation of the book of Revelation. When you go to Bible college or seminary, you often would take a course called Dan Rev, Daniel and Revelation. It is the hand and glove that go beautifully together, that which Daniel prophesies, Revelation fulfills. And so uh, you you can really see God's orchestration of prophetic literature in those two books. Its revelation of the sovereignty and power of God has brought assurance to Jew and Gentile alike that God will fulfill his sovereign purposes in time and eternity. Scholars have estimated that about 28% of the Bible is prophetic, over a quarter. And it's important for us to realize that that's sort of God's little calling card that I'm in charge. I know what has happened in the past. I know what will happen in the future, and I am with you all during those times, even those times of discipline, even those times of trial, even those times where life appears out of control. Books like Daniel, chapters like Daniel 7, in particular the Son of Man that we will focus upon today, help certainly remind me of God's sovereign hand upon us, and in fact He does have the whole world in His hands. Here's just a few of the prophecies. If if Daniel was going looking for a job, this would be on his resume, okay? He'd put these down. He he prophesies the four Gentile kingdoms in chapters 2, 7, 8, 10, 11, and 12. He's going to prophesy what will happen about 400 years later after he writes uh, the destruction and desecration of the Jewish temple. In and around 167, 166 BC, the Greeks, as Daniel had prophesied, had taken over Jerusalem. And a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, sort of the warlord who was over that area, uh, walked into the Jewish temple, declared himself to be God, desecrated the temple. And it so outraged the Jews that under a group of guys known as the Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt resulted, and they overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes. And they went to dedicate the temple in and around Shizlev in the Hebrew Bible, or December. And the word for dedicate is Hanukkah and thus, that's the birth of Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah in the, known as the Feast of Dedication in John 10 because of this great moment that Daniel had prophesied. But Antiochus Epiphanes not only serves as the desecrator of the Jewish temple then, he is also a prefigure, a type, a shadow of a more horrific desecrator, the Antichrist, also of whom Daniel will prophesy of. The horn, little horn, beast will be his name throughout Daniel, as it is in the book of Revelation. Four different chapters he will give uh, information on the person of Antichrist. For my money, I think the most amazing, precise prophecy in the entire Word of God occurs in in Daniel chapter 9, wherein not only does he predict the tenure of the tribulation period, two, three-and-a-half-year periods, I believe he predicts the exact date of Christ's crucifixion, but he does it 483 years before it happened. 483 years before April the 3rd, 33 AD, God, through Daniel, will tell us through this prophecy in Daniel 9 of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah. He will let us know about the links and details of the tribulation, that it will begin with a covenant that Israel will make with peace with another. That other will divide and and, and ruin that peace covenant halfway through, revealing himself to be not their friend but their foe. The Antichrist is now revealed. And then the last half of the tribulation, known as the Great Tribulation, emerges. Two, three-and-a-half-year periods culminating with the return of Jesus Christ. And after the return of Christ, Daniel chapter 7 is going to let us know about the messianic reign of Christ on earth. And that's the lens of our camera. Okay, everything else was just a little setup of all that else that Daniel talked about. But after the return of Christ is where I want to draw our attention to in this little theophany in Daniel chapter seven around this character known as the Son of Man, which will ultimately emerge with the earthly reign of Jesus Christ after His return. Another chart for you to let you see what Daniel saw in various forms, whether it be metals or animals. Um, scholars have long agreed that that he was referring to empires and it's interesting the first empire that would come on the scene babylon in this case would be eaten or destroyed defeated by the next one so babylon defeated by persia modern day iraq then greece who defeated persia and then rome who defeated uh, greece interestingly though rome is stated in two different parts and scholars have thought that perhaps the rome that we know that uh, overruled Jerusalem in around the time of Christ and was ultimately removed around 70 AD was just the first part of that prophecy, and there's a Rome kingdom yet to come, the kingdom of the Antichrist. We'll see how that unfolds, but the the prophecy seems to allow for that possibility. In this great seventh chapter of Daniel, where I'd like you to turn to as we begin our time, notice that Daniel will reveal in consecutive history four major world empires concluding with the return of Jesus Christ from heaven and the establishment of his kingdom, known as the fifth kingdom. We see in this section that Daniel is going to have a vision first of these four kingdoms, and then we're going to get in verses 9 through 14 where our focus will primarily be, and the the key figure being The Son of Man and what is given to him and why that matters to us. Okay, so uh, as he sees his vision in in one through eight, those four kingdoms that we talked about—Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome—each devouring the other. And now we see God is going to change the plan. Those kingdoms have not produced a righteousness on the earth, and God in heaven we see in verses nine and ten will begin to enact a judgment on that fourth. Empire that exists at that time. The leader of that fourth empire is known in Daniel as the little horn. Elsewhere in Daniel, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, that's just another term for the Antichrist. The little horn of the fourth kingdom is destroyed as well as his empire in verses 11 and 12, and then a different kind of kingdom. Not or unlike the first four, a kingdom that is birthed in heaven and spells out on the earth, this fifth kingdom. The kingdom of the Son of Man will emerge in verses 13 and 14, signifying a whole new way of doing things. Now, picking it up in verse 9, we're going to read from verse 9 through 14 just to I kind of give you a pre-outline of where we're going so that we'll see it. Uh, those of, uh, of you that like to do Bible study methods, there's a key phrase in here. I kept looking. Notice how many times he keeps saying that. It, for, it forms the structure of it, reminds us that he is peering in, looking into the vision that he has granted. Daniel says in verse 9 of chapter 7, I kept looking. Notice the grandeur of this scene. Until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out. From before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. I had jury duty a couple of weeks ago. About eighty of us get called into this larger area and they look at the paperwork you filled out and they ask twenty four to come in to be further screened, and the other, what, forty something, leave. I was part of the 24 this time. And you go into the court and it's sweared in and bailiff comes in, ask everybody to stand up when the judge comes in. The lawyers welcome themselves and, and begin to present the case loosely so that we, they can determine whether we can judge fairly. And it's a nice courtroom scene in downtown Bryan. I'm, I'm convinced that the judge was in the back, I think, playing video poker during the whole time as I wasn't quite certain what she was doing, but it was not grand like this. Daniel, after he saw this prophecy, grew pale. He was ill from the grandeur of what he saw. It was so overwhelming to him, he realized, I I don't belong here. I shouldn't be seeing these things. Notice the scene. It's a courtroom scene. The court sat. The books were opened. He goes on to say, I kept looking. There it is again. Because the sound of the boastful war words which the horn was speaking. Antichrist. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. That will occur literally almost word for word in the great white throne judgment, the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, borrowing directly from those words and imagery from Daniel 7. As for the rest of the beasts, the other nations, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of time or life was granted to them. For an appointed period of time. Only the emperor and the empire of the fourth kingdom is destroyed. The first part, I believe, of the Roman Empire that will ultimately be destroyed as Antichrist will uh, will be its head as we'll see as this unfolds. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, here's our boy, one like a son of man, was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So after the courtroom is, is set, the books are open, enters the Son of Man and is presented before the Ancient of Days. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And we're going to focus in on that aspect of kingdom. Why was he given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, Daniel tells us, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. He's talking about earthly people, earthly languages, serve him on earth. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, unlike the one we just saw in the previous verse, and his kingdom will, will be one that is, will not be destroyed. Let's make sure we understand what Daniel saw. Because it's the key to understanding the theophany, and it's the key to understanding the prophecy that emerges from the theophany, okay? He'll see four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greek, and Rome. He'll then see uh, the Ancient of Days. Only time this term appears is in Daniel chapter 7, three times, verses 9, 13, and 22, this phrase, the Ancient of Days. I believe it to be God the Father. He fits the role everywhere else. He's in heaven. He's judging. But a particular aspect of his character was given to Daniel in this vision, and that of his, he's aged, thus the term ancient. It's what you want in your judges, if you will, a little gray in their beard. They've they've been around it for a while. They're ready to take on the difficult case and and scrutinize and, and execute justice and righteousness correctly. God, of course, doesn't age. He's always in the present, but Daniel has given him, uh, given an image of him as he is aged and is thus in his prime as a judge. And we see him thus called the Ancient of Days, and, and he's doing what judges do. He's holding court and executing justice. And we see next maybe what Daniel maybe saw. Maybe he got on the Internet that night and downloaded this picture. I, I'm not really sure. And I challenge you, if you're artistic, if you're creative, read Daniel 7 and, and write down what he saw. Later he'll say he grew pale as a result of the amazingness of what he saw. Uh, an aged one, uh, quite capable obviously, books opened, angels, myriads around him, and then other people before him, wheels and fire. It's, a, it's intended to knock your socks off and it did. Daniel was overwhelmed with the vision. We then see the next character come on the scene, the Son of Man. Great courtroom, ancient of days, sitting, enter the Son of Man. And he, is, he will be presented before the Lord. Notice he will come with the clouds of heaven. Elsewhere, the Bible says that God comes with the clouds of heaven. Isaiah 19 says the Lord rides the heavens. Uh, Clouds are very important in in a lot of aspects of the Word of God. When when Jesus leaves in Acts 1, He leaves in a cloud. You remember what He said? In the same way I'm leaving, I'm a coming back. Flash forward to Revelation 1-7. Christ comes with the clouds in direct fulfillment of that, so clouds seems to be kind of the limousine that, 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 that God is encapsulated in these clouds in this vision as He rides them, or so it appears, uh, showing Himself to be uh, supreme and preeminent. So the Son of Man comes with the clouds, and He comes before the ancient of days. So He has access, direct access to God the Father, and then God the Father gives Him dominion, that is, the right to rule. He gives him glory, that is, uh, the idea of importance. He matters, and thus he should be followed. And he gives him a kingdom, which means he's placing him in some sort of a king role. For kings have kingdoms, and they rule over, and they're treated with importance, for what they do is important. Fifth kingdom is what he was given, not like the first four. The fifth kingdom, one that starts in heaven, comes onto the earth, over all the people on the earth, one that will not be destroyed. It's a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom that belongs to the Son of Man, okay? So, got to ask, who is this Son of Man? We probably already know the answer, but let's let the Bible teach us as it unfolds, because that's one of the most important aspects of biblical prophecy, is to allow the revelation to unfold as it, as it seeks to unfold, very much like a relay race one one person runs one leg of the race and then hands the baton to the next person and that individual advances the race one author begins a doctrine the next author maybe 2 300 years later will advance the doctrine to ultimately what we see it at the book of revelation but we're seeing now that being unfolded son of man was seen in heaven with God the Father that's not easy access he's seen riding the clouds with God we've seen elsewhere that God rides the cloud. He is given this vast kingdom by the Father. He is to be served by all the peoples of the earth. Notice what David had said 400 years prior about this king. The Lord says, I have installed my king upon Zion, in and around Jerusalem, my holy mountain. Surely I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Really, the doctrine of the kingdom is going to begin all the way back to Genesis 3. Where after Adam and Eve sinned, the seed of the woman was promised. The one who would come and remove the terrible curse that is upon the earth and and the undignified aspect of being creatures intended for glory but now ruined by sin. That doctrine is going to be advanced later by 2 Samuel 7, we'll see in a moment. But the Son of Man is going to refer to Himself here in this case as the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice When asked the question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, in Mark 14, Jesus will answer, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man, speaking of himself, sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. All these imageries that you'll see in Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and later in the Gospels, also in Revelation, Paul captures perfectly in Philippians 2, the famous kenosis passage, where Jesus emptied himself of the great glory that he had so that he could take on human flesh and die an appropriate sacrifice for you and me. Therefore, as a result of those actions and the great glory that the Lord possesses, God has bestowed upon him, has highly exalted him rather, and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Father is setting up a kingdom, for His Son. And we're seeing that the Son of Man is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will refer to Himself over 80 times in the Gospel as the Son of Man. 31 times alone in the book of Matthew, the most Jewish of all four Gospels, He will refer to Himself by this Daniel term, the Son of Man, the Messiah. It is a widely used Messianic term and in perfect keeping, with the grandeur and importance of Daniel's prophecy, as we're seeing in chapter 7. Who authorized this kingdom? Well, we've seen that he came before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, God the Father, is the one behind this. Some 400 years prior, David had a deal presented to him by God the Father. And David, an earthly king, was told these words in some marvelous 7th chapter of 2 Samuel and I. I implore you to, to know it well, for it's a key moment in the relay race. In the prophecy relay race, it's a key handoff as we move to not just any earthly kingdom, but a particular kind of earthly kingdom, an earthly kingdom that must be throned or housed by a descendant of David. So he tells to David, your house, David, meaning your progeny, your offspring, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. We don't have a Jewish king right now ruling in Jerusalem. When Jesus came, he said he was that king, but he's not here anymore. But he promised to come back. If you put thoughts like that together with this passage, I think it's reasonable to conclude that the promise given to David is to be taken literally. That on the throne of your son, a king will sit that comes from David. When Jesus was presented in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew writes what might appear boring information to us, a genealogy, right? He starts his book off that way. But it starts off with this verse, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Chronologically, those two are out of order. Abraham lived in 2100 BC. David lived in 1000 BC. But why did he list David first? Because you didn't just have to be a son of Abraham, you had to be a son of David, a particular descendant, not just Abraham, not just Isaac, not just Jacob, but through the lineage of David, the king will come. And so we'll see the importance of that, a very important chapter elsewhere. In Daniel 7, of course, the Son of Man will come up before the Ancient of Days and be given glory and dominion and this kingdom. And we see the importance of that also recorded The active authorization of the Father's role in this kingdom, where now, even today, the Father is making the Lord's enemies a place on which the Lord might rest his feet. Yahweh says to my Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The active aspect of God the Father preparing his Son's kingdom for him in which we, as we're about to see, will participate The the, the kingdom is called many different things as you read the Scripture and as you study other books. You'll see it called the kingdom. It's the fifth kingdom as we've seen here. The messianic reign of Christ, as I've chosen to entitle it, the the messianic kingdom. Uh, The millennial kingdom, because Revelation will talk about that it lasts a thousand years. But what we're going to see is many different authors in both the Old and New Testament talk about this great time on earth in which Messiah himself will rule. Not his first advent, but after his second advent. And the importance of that is seen in how he chooses to rule his kingdom. Isaiah says it will be with righteousness, with fairness, but also a rod. Beautiful combination of those things. But most importantly, I think for us, is that he chooses to rule this kingdom with his saints. With those that are properly related to him. Both the Old and New Testament use the word saints to describe believers. It literally means holy ones, but in, in everyday use in the Old and New Testament, it has the idea of one who is distinct, who is set apart, who's uncommon. We're set apart because of our faith in Christ, and as a result, when Paul would write a church, he would say to the saints at Corinth, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints in Rome, believers... Members of the church distinguished from being common and now made uncommon, special, set apart because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we see the importance that those saints we're going to see will not only possess with the Lord, but will participate with Him in its administration. And the importance of that will will unfold as we see here in Daniel 7 in the interpretation section. Notice what he says, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. The same thing is is evidenced in Revelation 5, verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest of our God, and they will reign upon the earth. When does he rule this kingdom? We see that the marriage supper of the Lamb that occurs in Revelation 19 lets us see that we, in fact, as Christians in this day and age, will actually be the ones participating with him possessing delegated authority from him to rule with him in this kingdom. Follow the fine linen in this passage, okay? There's a thread, pardon the pun here, uh, that that will work throughout here, but follow the fine linen reference and it will give us an insight as to who gets to participate in this kingdom of the returning Lord Jesus seen here in Revelation 19. This is at the end of the seven-year period. This will end what's called the campaign or Battle of Armageddon, and Christ will return as a warrior with a myriad of people around him. Because the marriage of the Lamb to his bride has come, the church seen as the bride of Christ, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her, that is the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, He will go on to unlock that. He'll use a symbol. He says, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Those upon whom fine linen is worn are the saints. The saints are wearing fine linen. Keep going. the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, were following him on horses. You ever seen a movie or some kind of imagination of John? John's vision here in Revelation 19, you, we might think there's a myriad of angels who come back with the Lord, because that's who's usually referred to as armies. Elsewhere, we know that angels are a part of the return. But he specifically cites that members of the bride of Christ, the church, being prepared for the final wedding, remember, we are betrothed to him now and we consummated in that marriage at the return of the Lord on the earth, we are returning with him. We are the ones riding the horses, okay? So go equestrian. Here we go. We, we, we need to get ready, but th- that, that's a, 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 an insight into our future that we may not have seen in biblical prophecy. When is this kingdom? It's at the return of the Lord. He's going to be asked a question in, in Matthew chapter 24, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, a crucial chapter on biblical prophecy. He will quote from Daniel in that chapter, and it will advance the story of 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 his uh, return or up until his return, but he'll be asked this question. What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Notice the question presupposes that the sign of your coming and the end of the age are the same thing. And Jesus answered the question in accord with that. The remaining part of Matthew 24 is the answer to that question, that there'll be a a three-and-a-half-year period, then a desecration, abomination of desolations known by Daniel the prophet then three-and-a-half-year great tribulation, and then the return of the Lord. Those are the events. Those are the signs of His coming. So at the end of, of the tribulation period, the Lord returns, as we just saw in Revelation 19, and then He sets up His kingdom, Revelation 20 says, for a thousand years. Six times He'll use the phrase a thousand years. Okay, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, 3, verse 3 four, five, six, and seven, six straight verses, one reference each verse for a thousand years. Here's a couple. And they came to life, those that had died during the tribulation, they come to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They will be a priest of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Our participation in this kingdom, yet future, is unmistakable in the word of God. The chart that we've been sort of unfolding is before you now. You see the the four great kingdoms. We bring up to the kingdom that we're talking about, the kingdom of the Son of Man, the messianic reign of Christ on earth. This kingdom is an earthly kingdom centered in and around Jerusalem. Jerusalem will undergo a great deal of of, uh, geographical changes. Uh, Be an earthquake, new mountains will emerge, new rivers will emerge, 2 Samuel chapter 7 had promised an enduring earthly kingdom. It seems to be in keeping with the messianic reign of Christ on earth. Matthew 19 and Matthew 25, our next two witnesses, if you will, can help us e- have even further insight. Both of these are words of the Lord Jesus. First from Matthew 19, when the Son of Man, there he is referring to himself as the Son of Man, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You, the apostles, who he's speaking to, to whom he's speaking, shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the apostles seem to have a particular important role as judges over regathered Israel, living in actual Israel and in and around Jerusalem, tribed up again, all twelve tribes being distinguished, and they will be like mayors or governors over those particular various tribes. Elsewhere... Six chapters later, Jesus will say this, the great sheep and goat separation in Matthew 25, 31 through 34. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. It seems to me like an earthly scene. He's come back to earth, the people before Him on earth are are, are over here, the sheep to the right, goats to the left, the sheep are allowed in because of their proper relationship to the Lord they had believed in in Messiah, and the goats are not allowed entrance. Notice what he says to the sheep. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. The Ancient of Days gives the kingdom to the Son of Man. The Son of Man, our Lord Jesus Christ, includes us as fellow possessors and fellow participants in this yet future kingdom on earth. How is this kingdom different? Well, as you might imagine, it's not like Babylon. It's not going to be like... Persia are not going to be like Greece or Rome. This one's going to be overruled directly by the Lord Jesus Christ physically here. It is the ultimate Emmanuel, God with us. He is not in heaven, not just the Holy Spirit presence, the person of Jesus Christ, the one for whom our heart longs to see and be near, will be on this planet ruling over. And that is the primary distinction of the millennial reign of Christ. It will be populated by glorified saints, you and me. Believers who die prior to the tribulation or are raptured will receive glorified bodies and come back with Him wearing fine linen, riding horses. That's the image. That's our future, to be not only returners with Him but be participants and possessors of this kingdom with Him. We will enjoy a delegated authority. The tribulation, of course, there'll be people at the end of the tribulation who will survive. They will only be Christians, for everyone else will be removed. Uh, But they will enter into the millennial kingdom in the same kind of spiritual condition that you and I are in. Believers in Christ, yet just regular men and women. Still having the vestige of Adam's sin, still having these great battles between the flesh and the spirit. Regular Christians just like you and me, but around them will be glorified saints and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will have children, those tribulation-surviving Christians, and it is not guaranteed that over that thousand years that all those children will be believers. There will be sin in the millennial kingdom. We know from Isaiah, we know from the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 20, it will be dealt with harshly, but nonetheless it will be there. And as a result, they will be also populated by the offspring of the tribulation survivors. And so... What else distinguishes this kingdom? It's all sorts of things. The sun will, will return to a different type of efficiency that it has now and cause all sorts of growth that you see earlier, by the way, in the book of Genesis, very similar to the length of life that you saw early in the book of Genesis. Natural changes as well. Notice the various chapters that I'm referring. It's not just Revelation 20. It's not just Daniel. It's Isaiah. It's Ezekiel. It's Amos. It's Zechariah. These are the usual suspects that talk about this reign of Christ on earth. Vastly increased fruitage and produce, great productivity of animals, superabundant food supplies, abundance of wine, all sorts of uh, uh, situation there that you might enjoy or not. Maybe that's why the ferocity of the animals have been removed. Remember in Genesis 9, the fear of man will be upon animals now it's removed by the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation as prophesied by the book of Daniel. Great healing of disease and deformity. Great longevity of life in Isaiah 65. A youth will be known as a youth at the age of 100. Remember the genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11? Guys were living six, seven hundred, 700, 800, 900 years. You're just a young guy at 100 It completely blows the way we view life, but I think we're seeing that's how life was intended to be led and how sin has had its ravaging effects on all these things, and now they're returning with the return of the Lord Jesus and His establishment of His kingdom. Great reduction in sin, Jesus ruling from Jerusalem with a myriad of glorified saints throughout the world bringing about His righteousness. It is a wonderful time to be alive, for peace will prevail. The famous verse from Micah 4 that's inscribed on government buildings and university buildings is really a prophecy about the millennial kingdom. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. Does it matter? I think it does. I think it completes our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we just have little snapshots of him. The theophanies were intended to let you see that he's been around since the garden. He's been involved in the affairs of human beings since the beginning. Colossians 1 will say he was the one who actually created us. We've seen these pictures of Him, and, and certainly the, the images that you see in the Old Testament, the, 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 the story of the, the bull and the blood and, and, and the goats, and finally the Lamb of God, and the Lamb of God crucified on a cross and then ascended, and now returning. And now returning to do what? Establish this kingdom to let us see what life, even in our states now, could be like with the person of Jesus Christ living among us. I think it also helps us complete our understanding of the story of the Bible. Remember that image of a relay race. Prophecy and and the revelation is progressive. He doesn't tell us everything at first, just like a good novel. You got to read the first chapters to get to the good stuff at the end and watch the chapters unfold and the characters develop. But ultimately, you'll see a story, a story of righteousness that has been ruined And then immediately upon the righteousness that was ruined, God began a plan to restore that righteousness. And so these images of righteousness and ruination and ultimately restoration comprise the story of the Bible. And chapters like Daniel 7 and doctrines like the doctrine of the kingdom of Messiah are important to to, to sear well into our hearts to recognize that God is indeed supremely sovereign. He does have the whole world in His hands. He's got our backs. He's got the future. And the amazing thing is that we are a part of it. That's why proper, uh, a proper understanding of the gospel is so important. If you're here this morning and you've come to a place where you realize that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, you're guaranteed by the sure word of God to participate in that great kingdom. But perhaps you're not sure. What a great time. What a great invitation to be a part of something regal and royal and amazing. That Christ, the one who died for our sins, the baby who was born, who grew up to be a sacrifice for us all, by simple the fact of faith that we might believe in Him, we can then enjoy eternal life. The one who died for our sins and rose from the dead is also calling us into the vineyard with him now to disciple and evangelize, but to look forward also to his return, the one who comes to fulfill our souls and to be the ultimate Emmanuel, the restorer of life um, on this planet. It's, it's not all that happens, though. I want to give you a, a brief overview of what is yet to come. Satan, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, is bound, and that's why there's a great reduction in sin. But he's released at the end of the millennial kingdom, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. What do you think happens? He repents. He comes to know the Lord. No, he goes out and deceives the nations. And those unbelievers who are a result of the tribulation saints who are living in the millennial kingdom, their children will fall prey to him. And they will be deceived again, showing the terrible effect and ruination of Adam's sin within us. It needs to be eradicated. It needs to be completely removed. False prophet and Satan will then be destroyed at the end of of Revelation chapter 20. Great white throne judgment judging all unbelievers at the end of Revelation 20 as well. The earth will then be purged by fire. And then we see the culmination of the Bible. The first two chapters... Genesis 1 and 2, perfect paradise for what we were intended. God and his creation under complete order, vertically and horizontally, ruined by sin. And it takes everywhere from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation 20 to ultimately deal with that terrible foe, that terrible ruination that we call sin. And finally, at the end, paradise is restored. Paradise seen paradise lost paradise restored in genesis in revelation 21 and 22 it's a beautiful story it's the story of god who designed something for us who did not leave us alone even in the midst of our participation of the ruin of his creation but is actively engaged in restoring us back to himself and ultimately the planet back to its original intent and that really is what our heart cries for what we were intended to be people with whom God had relationship, people with whom we had relationship with Him. Emmanuel, God with us, and that we get to participate with Him in this future kingdom and in the new heavens and new earth. That's outside of our topic today, but that's also on point. helps us see the wonder for which we were created. David writes in in Psalm 8, What is man that thou art mindful of him? You have crowned him with glory and honor. We're not just little worms set aside because of our sin. We are the objects of God's restoration so that we can be what we were intended to be. And stories like Daniel 7, at least for me, kind of fire me up a little to let us know what it is that we were intended to be so that I might participate with him well. Daniel 7 the Son of Man. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege to think about these things this morning. We ask you for opportunity outside this place to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so, and help us be encouraged by your supreme sovereignty. We thank you for this time now in Jesus' name. Amen.